wasn't. It says it wasn't. God damn it. Fuck. Oh my god. Wait a minute. Now? Ah! Did I do it? Oh, I did it. Oh, I don't. I got. You know what I did? Guys, you want to know what I did? I fucking turned it off and turned it back on again. No. Okay, boomer. That's why well, that will never affect me. Because, duh. Of course I'm a fucking boomer. That's like saying, okay, mammal. I do not have any kind of sense of uh, uh, insecurity about my generational cohort. I am, I am old for a millennial, and I am old for a millennial. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the oldest millennials, and also, I've always been, like, at the very far edge of uh, the whole scene, you know? One of those people stopped listening to new music once I turned, like, 22. Although I do think it's funny that now I'm going to try to fucking expound on some bullshit that's supposed to be pseudo-profound, and it's going to be on the heels of having, like, spent almost half an hour fucking around with my phone before I turned it off and turned it back on again. So I've already impeached my credibility as a fucking interlocutor before we've even begun. So that's always a good way to start. But I'm all about transparency as a way to undermine judgment and protect oneself. It's a very good move. It's a smart move. Oh, the Insta stream was, I thought it was the Twitch deal, and I thought Twitch was having problems, and so I just tried to do it on Instagram, but then it was fucked up there too. So that was when I realized, nope, it is my phone. And then I thought, well, what's the last thing I could possibly do? I could fucking turn it off and turn it back on again. Because I'm pretty sure what is happening is that even though I was connected, according to the computer with the Wi-Fi, uh, that it wasn't really there. Like Because whatever happens when you haven't turned the phone off and on again recently enough. And so I literally just blew in the fucking cartridge. So it could have been Muncher, that scamp, that mischievous scamp. It just occurred to me, I can't believe how long it took to think about this, with Muncher being this avatar of our, like, joyless consumption at the end of history, like 40 years of being Slimer, just consuming, consuming as a hungry ghost with no anima, no uh, reason for being, because we've been stripped of our, of our control of our, our lives and become beings of... Just pure uh, consumer, hedonic uh, uh, exsanguination of spirit. Like just the, the, the hungry ghosts of Buddhism, literally. After 40 years, we're, we're now blue and pained and in misery. And what does Muncher munch? What is depicted behind him in that horrific 3D tableau they unveiled? Corn. He munches fucking corn. The only agricultural... Corn and soy are basically our agricultural exports. Not just our exports. The basis of our heavily subsidized uh, fucking Monsanto Franken diet that we all eat. Corn in... the sh Corn in everything. Thanks to high fructose corn syrups. Corn in a fucking gas tank. As I said on the Iowa State Fair dock that we did, you could build, not, you could build the Twin Towers out of corn and crash them into 747s made of corn every day, and you would not run out of corn. It's in plastic. It's everything. And that's Muncher. That's us. S sucking the corn. Anyway, that's not what I was coming to talk today about. I have an actual point here. That's why I called this one a vote ball sequel, because I feel like I'm getting another piece of the puzzle together that has made me pretty confident that I can now really start to try, as people have asked me to, to put something down on paper. Because I feel like there's been a missing piece, a way to talk about things, a way to approach the subject that's made it hard for me to imagine a coherent thing out of it that I could move forward with. Now I think I have it, but first, let me say that the other day I said that I 
uh, knew how the what the ending of Trading Places was, and I explained it, and I asked if that was correct, and most people said it was right. But I did get a DM from someone who pointed out that there's one detail I missed, which is that they did not take Denholm Elliott, the butler's money, to Chicago to buy the frozen concentrated orange juice, because this is a futures market, as the guy pointed out to me. These are commodity futures. What they were doing is they were taking his money to act as collateral to make a margin that to and then like basically taking on the assumed debt uh, implicit in that arrangement, selling their uh, future contracts, as in saying, I will buy, I will deliver you frozen concentrated orange juice at this date for this price. And they sold those at the height of the frenzy. And then after the real crop report came out, we were like, oh no, there's not going to be that much demand for oranges because we're going to have a glut of oranges. It collapsed. And then uh, they bought those contracts at that point and pocketed the difference by just literally being the middleman. And that comes down, the reason I didn't know that is because I didn't really understand that. I really hadn't... Uh, fully internalized that that's what a futures market is. Like, you're literally just, it's just time. It's not the commodities themselves. So that's a mea culpa. I didn't get that part right. But what I come here today to try to do is take us from where we were talking about, like, the social base of this baronial revolt we're seeing now. The beautiful boaters against global capital. We talked about their uh, demog their like demographic and uh, geographic distribution, their politics and all that stuff, and how that is the actual like power structure that is resisting capitalism. Not the people, not uh, uh, because because yes, we are all being alienated by it, but our alienation is being uh, gathered around the cultural uh, concepts generated by that culture. That those regional bar baronies, basically, and uh, and as such, like we're not actually um, we're not actually seeing any real combat about you know the underlying system of economic exploitation undergirding both flavors of capitalism. Uh, both essentially, it's essentially a battle of time. It's it's the future versus the past of capitalism, and then the and then the present is like the crucible of their conflict. And we are subject to this dispute, and we can pick sides, but that's because we're be we don't live as 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 workers. We live as uh, as consumers as of spectacle and of everything, uh, munchers, as it were. Uh, and that's as far as good as far as it goes. But the one other thing that I have kind of been gnawing at and trying to understand, and I've used the college thing a lot, that people are sick of me talking about college, as like a way to try to get at understanding the dynamic here. But it, it, and it all felt clumsy. I felt like I was onto something, but it felt clumsy, and this is what really made it click for me. Is that, forget about college necessarily. What we're talking about is, so we've got two political wings, right? We've got the two battles, the two, the two superstructural battles, or the superstructural battle between the two uh, types of capitalism as reflected by the political parties that they uh, uh, are represented by, right? The Democrats and the Republicans. And the, so we've talked about the voters, and that's the social base of, uh, of the Republicans. We haven't talked as much about the social base of the Democrats, but as you can imagine, it is the white people who, instead of being local barons, Instead of controlling capital in fixed positions like franchises or oil extraction industries or anything else, um, they uh, work. They work their way through the credentialing process to apply their minds to gain high status, relatively high paid work in the professional managerial class. That's the voters. Like obviously at the top, the billionaires, but these are the voters. Because disproportionately, the vote, people who vote, vote most frequently, vote in primaries, and therefore shape the 
re, like the political environment that we, we live in and are, are just absorb every day uh, are older, wealthier versions of the voters of both sides. So we are talking here, unitedly, even if you say, oh, they might not technically be capitalists, they have capitalist interests. And most of them, even these PMC people, they have investments in the market beyond even a 401k and a fucking house. Like, they, ha they are invested in the market. They are capitalists the way that the petit bourgeois often are, where it's not a universe, it's, it's not a unrestrained position of, you know, uh, of, of ca capital ownership, but it is, their wealth is, and their position is inflected with it. So those are the voters. But the politics that we're seeing and the politics that we care about and the politics that we imagine, the politics represented not by cable news, but by the internet, i.e. politics as it's understood by the younger people who don't make up the voting base of politics, but make up the activist base that online and in the real world creates what we call a political like movements, momentum, the left and right as represented not on television, but online. These people are the ones that we all are. And these people are the ones that we are all arguing against and who, who we uh, spend time dis dis dissecting the motives of and, the, and, and things like that because this is the self-consciously political level. Who are they? They are, for the most part, not working class in the sense of being directly exploited as employees, you know, for their labor as a, you know, not even getting all of the, the, the cultural shit that comes when you're dealing with, you know, a high status jobs. You know, like your, your, uh, your retail workers, your, your DoorDash, whatever. Uh, they largely don't vote and don't participate in politics necessarily because they see it as false because they live too close to the reality of its fraud, which people in the middle are... And when they're kids and most, most susceptible to creating structures that dominate the thinking that goes on the rest of their life, where they are programmed, they are too comfortable to have that. They have to be disillusioned. No one at the bottom gets illusioned in the first place. And so that means that we're not talking about uh, the working class in general, and we're definitely not talking about the poor. And more than that, we are not talking about the generationally poor. Yes, some of the people in this middle that we're going to be talking about are money poor, from poor money families. But they likely have a college degree, and at one point generated, had ideas of like um, um, upward mobility, and probably, more than likely, more than that, most likely, they came up in that middle section of like uh, PMC or... Uh, small business, small bourgeois, or that remaining slice of labor aristocracy that does exist. There's still a labor aristocracy, folks. It's small and shrinking, but it's still there. The public sector, in, in trades, it's there. These are the generationally poor. Like, if they went to college, they were the first members of their family to go. Something like that. Uh, who we're talking about, who actually not only votes, but creates the space of online argumentation, the space of political self-conception, the kind of thing that gets somebody to put on a fucking Hawaiian shirt and walk outside in, in, during a riot with a gun, or to make somebody decide to go out and throw a brick at a cop. Like These things are not created by our social relationships near so much as they are created by our pseudo-relationships between uh, the internet and ourselves, because where else are we getting anything? Where, that is where we live. We all know it. Who these people are, are the children of those people at the top. They are the downwardly mobile children. They are the children who went to college with the expectation that life would be something like their parents' lives. If, and if they did the things that their parents told them to do, and not just their parents, everything around them told them to do. They had a social contract in their hand, and then they graduated from college, and it got rescinded. 
these are the people, maybe they fail sons into their parents' basement and became Pepe's. Maybe they uh, became a fucking DSA member. Whatever the hell it is, it all starts with taking that first step off after college and just tumbling into a fucking abyss, which no one had prepared you for. And that's that feeling, that fall, that's what's powering politics at the level of activism. Activism, remember? Because if it's not, if it's passive spectacle observation, it's just TV and it will just be continue with being what it is. Any, anything, any illusion we have that we can shape the system away from total annihilation, it, uh, it assumes active political participation, not voting and not imagining oneself to have a fucking identity. So that means what we have, since we don't have a social order and we don't ha live class and we don't, for the most part, have class struggle in our lives, we have a spectacle and we have consumption, our, uh, our activism is inflected with that. Our activism is spectacular and it is, more than anything, libidinal. Because we are not activating, we are not being, um, being activists on behalf of any sort of universal love, uh, self-abnegating uh, um, submission to a cause greater than ourselves, because that requires a faith in one another, an emotional connection to other people, both intimately and abstractly, that persists beyond one's self-gratifying impulses. That's been scrubbed out of us. That has been bleached out of us. We aren't those people. We live in the culture that they created for a long time, and we see what, they, what their lives were like, and we use the language that they used. We use the vocabulary and the ideas and the symbols that they use, but they are hollow and empty. But we don't know that. There is nothing that isn't. There's nothing to contrast it with. So everything is ashes. I don't care how religious you are. If you're a fucking Christian in this country, you are as much of a dire soulless materialist as the most epic bacon fucking uh, uh, our spaghetti monster moderator. And that means that when we become active and the politics we create and the politics we've created until now, what we are creating is a politics of aggrieved customers. Because we, at a level deeper than thought, are operating, are being driven forward by pure self the desire for pure self uh, uh, self-satisfaction with no conception that self is infused with others because we have that drilled out of us our entire lives. I don't blame anybody for acting that way and that is why when I say this I'm saying I'm not saying I'm not accusing anyone of anything I'm not saying anything bad about anybody. I'm including everyone who is listening to this myself, the entire politically active, second generation, dispossessed, downwardly mobile Americans who make up the political class now, the active political class, they don't have any other way to be. This is the only way they have to be. Now, people who have politics that they think are good like to think that they were, thought themselves to those politics and that what made them uh, not selfish, made them like act for socialism and fight for socialism, it's because they had some sort of conversion. Something about them was different and special. And it really isn't that. It's really which shoot, which demographic uh, um, corn shoot you get pushed down by through basically almost entirely chance. And that's what sorts you. Not any virtue on your side. It's like fucking Plinko. You end up in a shoot thanks to banging into things that are based on your race, gender, uh, uh, class, where uh, geography, everything. Injury, disability. These things are shaping things. Not some universal drive towards transcendental, you know, politics, which you need to have to power a meaningful left. But no one knows that because they don't have anything to contrast it with in anybody else's lives. And so if all we know is our lives as consumers in this society, and we relate to this new retraction of the social contract as consumers, our desire will be to 
speak to the fucking manager. It will be to complain to someone in power so that they change it because the customer is always right. Well, the reason we're so fucking people are so pissed is because the customer is no longer right, if he ever was. It was a fucking con that was run. And now at the end of the line, the reality has been revealed. And how are we going to play deal with it? And so our politics, which we think are activists and we think are moving us towards a better world and are generated by, you know, real human solidarity, and they are at some level because once you start acting that way, you start realizing, oh, the world, there is this thing better than me. Oh my God, there is sacrifices that mean something. And that changes you, but you're still embedding all those experiences on top of this rickety structure that's created because you think that politics is complaining to someone else until they fix it for you. Because we have no understanding of ourselves as social coordinated actors. We are only individual isolated actors and consumption is our expression of autonomy and action. It's the only thing we can do and so we do it. And so if you wanna talk about every fucking pathology in politics, cancel culture and fucking uh, uh, the rise of fascism and the question of is it fascism and the question of who's oh well, you know what what could you say slurs in a DSA I mean all of these things are pseudo controversies just arguments to be had that are being indulged by people who think they're acting out of altruistic uh, you know socialist instincts but are truly just trying to get their fucking rocks off all of it is yelling at someone who you can imagine is responsible for your pain. That's it. And it's disguised as leftism. It's disguised as rightism, obvious. All of it is fake. It's a fucking masquerade to, to hide from ourselves the reality that they were just yelling at a customer service rep. What is Twitter? What is social media but an unmoderated customer service chat room to the United States of America where we say, uh, fascists in the streets, fix this. Uh, wow, uh, record-setting global warming, uh, excuse me, anybody, that's it. And no one is paying attention. No one is recording any of this. Uh, your call is not uh, important to us. You will not be held after for a quiz on your happiness with the interaction. You get nothing. You have to make do. And so we make a politics of sadism, of punishing people that we can imagine are responsible because we are cut off from even imagining productive politics that challenges capitalism from a position of strength and solidarity that transcends race, transcends gender, transcends generation, but is unified around an understanding of humanity that insists that there is more to the human experience than can be expressed in numbers, which is the drive of the capitalist algorithm, pulling the soul out of humanity, like Kali Ma pulling out fucking Indiana Jones's heart. And so take something like, uh, the woke versus unwoke question on the left. You know, ooh, slurs. Oh, should we say slurs to, to when we're doing socialism? Uh, or is that, you know, alienating? You're talking on behalf of people who aren't there, and you're only making it an issue. You're making it an issue preemptively. These things are not emerging from, like, real uh, connection, or real events. They are all people hypothetically creating situations to then get mad about. That's it. Before they even come up. If they came up in the subject of struggle, a lot of this shit would disappear. Like, you should say slurs, or I shouldn't say slurs. Why would anybody be who really cared about the issue at hand, who is going to a fucking, like, a meeting to unionize a workplace or a meeting with an activist group, why would they care about their, if they can say slurs? And why would anybody else care if slurs were said? 
incidentally, you know. They would have bigger shit to worry about. Everything flies off into neurotic flights of fancy because we're not looking to fix anything. We can't even imagine committing ourselves enough for body and soul and heart to do that. We are looking for someone in our vicinity to blame and scream at. I remember the DSA convention I went to. This is in 2017. This is right after DSA blew up after the Trump uh, election. And we all went there as, like, press. I tried to actually go there as a, uh, as a uh, delegate for the, the Cincinnati DSA, but I ended up not doing that. And there, in the lead-up to it, there was a big controversy because a lot of the delegates said that they weren't getting enough money from national to pay for travel to since Chicago and like and that the the, the stuff that was there which was like there was the discounted uh like living arrangements provided and there were meals and stuff but and it was like subsidized but it wasn't free and so people got insanely angry about that and started like yelling about how this was you know classist and it was it was showing you know that the that the poor couldn't uh, uh involve themselves in this and you know in the moment, those sides seemed to be very, like, that seemed to be a meaningful debate about, you know, how do we extend democracy out and how do we recognize things like, uh, you know, class privilege and, and access to resources? How do we allow the subaltern to speak? But the whole time, I couldn't help thinking that if there was real stakes here, people would figure it out instead of making it an argument and making it a conflict with the, in, within the organization, which is never a good thing if you want an organization that is effective. Like, you might have been right in the narrow way that there could have been more done to provide, but making it public and making a big argument about it, by definition, weakens the organization. Like, the idea that it's all good, like, I'm sorry, like, the idea that you're going to do public struggle sessions in an organization that's trying to recruit people, which means that you're involving people who are just looking at from afar... You're demanding that they take a position on arcane matters like this before they can even enter the tent. Why would that not scare people away? And for what benefit? You can figure this shit out. And it doesn't take people being cops, and it doesn't take uh, people being wreckers. All it takes is everybody looking for an outlet, looking for a manager to yell at. And it's not their fault. They're captured by this as much as anybody. And nobody's going to think or argue their way out of these conflicts because they're serving a deeper need than anything rational. So you cannot break off from them unless you find another place to find that meaning and energy, something outside of that loop, that loop of, 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 uh, of hedonic exaltation and then despair and that heightened and that ever heightening need to intensify the cycle in order to make up for the fact that it's fucking wearing off. It always wears off and that you have to seek something else. And that is why the questions that occupy the minds of people day in and out, day in and day out, baffle me sometimes because the movement that's going to come is going to have a religious, not in a sectarian sense, but in a, a sense of a articulated spiritual dimension because it will be arriving alongside and embedded in real struggles between people where bonds are formed. Emotional connections that transcend the rational, acrid, uh, symbolic representation for relations that we have to uh, console ourselves with because we build so much of our emotional lives around fake con in, uh, interactions. And that will create uh, it, when I say religious, I just mean that like, if you get into a meeting and you have a conflict with somebody, instead of flying into a fucking rage so that you can make a scene and be a martyr and get people on your side in your conflict with the other people in the organization who you've decided are actually the reason we don't have socialism because you're mad at them, if that, you could kind of like work things out more easily. If the hair trigger... If, the, if that hair trigger wasn't there waiting to spring on someone else, because that's what we're really there for, if you're really there for something else, then conflicts, holy shit, 
you can resolve them. You can agree to formats for resolution of issues and go through channels instead of creating dramas that reinforce your sensual relationship to politics. And the reason for it, the reason that this is the dominant form is because the people doing this, they grew up as consumers. They did not grow up alienated from this system. Like, I was on Minion Death Cult uh, the other night, last night, and they asked me, like, a lot of these people who are, like, you might not, the, the Robin Hood deal, it might not cause a revolution through, you know, the, the manipulation of stocks and stuff, but it's going to alienate a lot of people. It's going to disillusion a lot of people away from, um, away from uh, believing that the, that the capitalism is, you know, anything other than predation. But I said that we already have a critical mass of Americans who know that already, who don't need to be fucking disillusioned, the poor. And it does not make them into a weapon of, polit of political activism because being poor is not a relationship that builds uh, durable, self-sustaining uh, conflict with the state the way that labor does. It's got to be from the point of view of labor. That's the only way it's happening. That's the only way that a spark's going to be lit that isn't going to be consumed by this inferno of idiocy. But these middle-class kids, like I said, not necessarily uh, from the families of the beautiful boating, small bourgeois uh, ownership class, uh, not necessarily even high-level PMCs, but like if we're talking about the last generation to get any of that good juice from the post-war bubble, uh, nurses, uh, school teachers, even those labor aristocrats, those few remaining, uh, you know, uh, union factory workers, but also like skilled laborers, like HVAC guys and plumbers and fucking uh, um, electricians. Like those, those guys still exist. The building trades, those guys still exist. And they make middle-class lives for their kids. Lives of comfort. Lives where, when you're growing up, you do not see the world as alienating. It is alienated as, as like, the tendrils of trauma, many of them, like, induced by your own body changing on you, and others from externally, externally, bend you towards, like, trying to seek understanding. And, like, the more costed you are, the less you see capitalism as it is, and you see the system as it is, the later you come to that uh, moment of alienation, the harder it is to undo your own programming. So that's why the this this coming tide, this rising that may or may not that will come, but may or may not come in time. That's the only open question. Is going to come from the real proles, but not. That doesn't mean that people who grew up that way and now find themselves like really struggling and therefore resent being said that they're the PMC. Hey, am I like I'm not? I yes, but you are falling, and it's a different relationship to politics. If you can drop that fucking anchor that you're holding, if you can drop that that if you can kill the fucking Karen in your head. You can join, man. You can find it. Come on in. The water's fine. It's not here yet, obviously. It Well, in tendrils and in, in, in grass fire conflagrations, it exists, but I'm not there. I don't know where they are. Sure as hell isn't around me. But wherever it is and when it starts coming together, like the fucking, the drums. The fucking... The drums that's that uh, started the Haitian Revolution. I was trying to remember where it started. Boy Cain or something. I think we're gonna do Black Reconstruction. I don't have a copy yet, so it might not be right now. But I think we're gonna do Black Reconstruction next. Boy Cain, that's it. Drums. And you can fucking drop this bullshit and get serious. Or you can decide, actually, no, that's not real because it doesn't give you the juice that sitting on your fucking ass gives you. And it gives me. Like I said, this is all me. I'm literally yelling 
at myself every time I talk about this shit. Just the question is, does this refer, does this make sense to you? Does this sound like I'm describing the world? If it does, then standpoint theory can fuck off. Yes, I am projecting. I am projecting 100%. The question is, am I projecting out towards something that exists? Like, yeah, everyone's projecting. That's literally what you do. That's all that, that's all that like thinking is. You're the only point of reference. You are the only point of reference. I'm sorry. Doesn't matter how many fucking footnotes you put in your fucking master's thesis. Like, everyone's projecting. The only question is, like, who, and who makes sense and who doesn't is, does it sound like they're projecting accurately? Does it sound like they're describing a universalized experience, or are they being bent by neuroses and uh, self-interest into saying something else? No, it's not solipsism because you recognize that what makes truth is not anything in your head. What makes truth is what you can reflect through others. Because everybody, that thing about you're the only one, that applies to everybody. So comparing notes, laying experiences on top of each other, and seeing what makes, what connects, that's it. That's the only real generator of meaning and fact and truth. That's it. Nothing can come from within. It can only be reflected backward. Yeah, I finally realized that that's like really, really what I'm really all about. I'm a feminologist. What's it called? A phenomenologist? Yeah, that really is me. A phenomenologist. Amateur phenomenologist. I'll put that on my fucking... Uh, because everything else, it's like, it's all good. I love it. History, economics, politics, love talking about it. But at a certain level, you have to start... Um, you have to start playing with tools that I don't really handle very well. Numbers, for example. They're, my fingers are very uh, clumsy. So, if I can stay up here, that's where I really feel like I'm snapping things together. But then once I try to, like, come from the other end, I gotta use numbers. It's not so good. Okay, that felt really good, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna put together some stuff and I'm gonna start writing soon. So, look forward to something soon. I'm very excited. And it'll all, and then the beauty thing is, is that I will preface the thing by saying, look, uh, there, you can look at it, like the statements I make in this book, I am not going to cite myself. I am not going to, I'm not going to back it up. I'm not going to have stats. I'm not going to have numbers. They exist. And I believe that everything I say will be built on a nice structure of, you know, well, uh, integrated, you know, uh, 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 empirical understanding, but uh, they will mostly be take or leave concepts. And if you if you if you accept them, I think they really will. They will all hold together. But if you reject any of them, that's fine, and you may have your reasons. But it's up to you to decide: Are my reasons good or are they bad? Do I really disagree with this because? There's something wrong here, or am I looking for something because I don't want it to be right? No, no. People can find their own research. People can, people can, I don't, the whole point is to, is to reject that. 
Like that's, that's the thing that gets you locked in here. The idea that if you can know to a fine enough degree why something is happening, if you can get a Swiss enough, a, a, a well-timed enough little Swiss watch of every phenomenon in, in within like uh, uh, the political system, that that will help you find the right thing to do. And that's, that line will never appear because if you don't want to cross it, you will figure out a way not to cross it. The line of risk, the line of self-sacrifice. You will, if it's always going to be a question of empirical understanding, you will always be able to Zeno's paradox your way from ever crossing the line. You have to ask yourself deeper questions. And if you want to try to like pull things towards you know, more grounded observation to back it up or say, oh yeah, the whole premise of this is wrong. Fine. But that's going to be on you. Knowing when to quit, knowing your fucking limitations in a world where you can convince yourself that you know everything. That's one of the only ways that you can really uh, be productively uh, intellectual because that's what allows you to sort of, you know, showcase your best cut of meat. And not the shit that's all cut and, and gradiated with bullshit. Uh, the beauty part is, is that no matter what happens, and no matter what I write in this fucking thing, I will not be held accountable. Can't do it. Can't be done. Can't be held accountable. Sorry. Not going to happen. Can't be held accountable. Can't be held accountable. He's a powerful boy. He's a powerful boy. He looks to look good, but but now I find him simply unaccountable. Accountable boy, they all said. Can't be done. Can't be held accountable. And like, I make fun of that phrase, but look at it. When they say someone needs to be held accountable, they are writing a comment card. Because they're not going to do it. What? They're going to post about it? They're going to do the... If everyone did the same thing they did to hold the person accountable, what would change about their life? So, if that's not it... Clearly, the implication is someone else is going to do something. I think the real hope, the real thing that drives everyone participating in the political project, unconsciously or not, is that the way the world changes is that you say things enough. You find the right phrases and the right words, and everything clicks, and then everyone just changes their view simultaneously and then acts differently because of that. And that's not, that is, my friends, idealism. That's not what does it. It is conflict. Forces in conflict. Right now, we are in the middle of a class war. It's turning into a class genocide. And a lot of that reason for that is that the actual working class is not fighting it. They are essentially just getting murked without putting up a fucking duke because they are not self-conscious and organized as a working class. That project has not even really begun. There's embers of it from the burned structures that have been mat destroyed, especially since the 70s, all over the world, not just in the United States or even in e e uh, Europe. And now we have to live in the fucking wreckage and rebuild from it. But that's what's going to fucking move things. Not, this, not people uh, all complaining in unison to some imagined power that will address our grievances. They're in power... To ignore our grievances and to only address them in a way that helps them maintain their power. As soon as the power is threatened by your unified demands, those demands will be ignored. Which is why people saying that cancel culture is why uh, like Discord could get away with, cancel, uh, with uh, suspending the Wall Street Beats page. Like, oh, if you guys hadn't created this idea and, and precedent that it's okay for tech companies to censor speech, they wouldn't use speech as an excuse. 
No, they would use something else as an excuse. They're in charge. They do what they want. And because they're just telling us how it is and we have nothing to say about it, when they figure out a justification, all they have to do is figure out what the fucking room tone of the cultural moment is and then use that language. If they had to do it during the Bush administration, they would have said it was about terrorism. Now, because the cultural tenor has changed, the cultural hegemony is different, they'll tell you that it's because it's racist or Nazi or something. They'll use the tools that are there, but they get to pick them up. And the reason nobody can accept that, even if they believe it intellectually, is because if you really understand that that's the case, no amount of this bullshit will do the job. No amount of complaining to the manager will do the job. And you have to re reorient your understanding of what polit political action is. And nobody wants to fucking do that because it looks hopeless and nobody wants to suffer unnecessarily. And the only thing that breaks you through that and lets you do the Indiana Jones leap of fucking faith into the goddamn hole is if you have a thing beyond reason driving you. An emotion. An emotion that is generated by a feeling that transcends language and rationality, otherwise known as faith. Not in anything specifically, it's all arbitrary, it's all symbology, it's all the things that work. It's the simplest, it is the most... Religion is basically getting the... The symbols that can, can, that can hold the most emotional meaning in the fewest characters or lines. That's what it is. John Brown yourself, indeed. Not about the killing, and this is a perfect example. John Brown has become the idea fix of the like, online left since, 19, 20, since 2016. Correct? No one can argue against that. Why is he fetishized? Because he killed slave owners. Because he cut the heads off of some fucking slave owners. That's it. Because he speaks to the manager and cuts his fucking head off. <clears throat> it's fetishizing violent retribution against our aggrieved individuality. Our, the contract has been breached and someone needs to pay. That's what we're dreaming about. But we still do need John Brown. But we need John Brown because what drove him to do that, a thing that violated his Christian sensibilities and also made him a fucking marked man for the rest of his life, was faith. He saw the moment. The context of that, of the, of the Osawatomi massacre, was that a big confrontation had just arisen, a final big, like, apocalyptic confrontation between the free state forces and the slave uh, authorities in Missouri. And there was essentially a siege of Lawrence. A bunch of fucking butternut crackers were, were huddled around Lawrence threatening to sack it. And, and like the, the free state governor and uh, government were inside of it. And they backed down. The free state side backed down. Because nobody wanted to spill any blood. Certainly not their own. And from that moment, Brown knew it was going to happen if, it was, if there was not an intervention, if he didn't do something to change the contours of the conflict. What would happen is Missouri would end up becoming a slave state. And this was the fear of the antebellum abolitionists, and nobody talks about it anymore, but it is actually, absolutely, I think, what would have happened. Missouri comes in as a slave state, unbalancing the uh, order of the... Um, uh, uh, unbalancing the Senate so that now there's a majority of slave state senators. Uh, and the northern states would have seceded. The northern states would have just said, you know what, bye, which the Federalists threatened to do during the War of 1812 at the Hartford Convention, which is one of the things that helped drive a stake through the heart of the Federalist project. And then slavery would have persisted because the South would have let him go. Good, you guys go. We're going to have our little shitty uh, fucking neo-feudal uh, uh, suit, like pretend to be knights in our armor doing tournament joust like a bunch of fruity dickheads. <clears throat> and that was going to be what happened unless the stakes changed. And so they went and found some fucking, uh, uh, some 
relatively low-level slave state Missourians, some of whom didn't even own slaves, they were just there to, you know, maybe get some land in exchange for votes, cut their fucking heads off. And overnight, that changed the stakes of the conflict. So it was not someone's going to pay for this situation that can't change now. Some manager is going to get talked to so I can feel better about my grievance. This is going to materially change the conditions and drive us towards a conflict, which happened. After bleeding, people talk about the fucking Osawatomi Creek, but after that happened, Brown and his fucking kids and his retinue ran around the whole state of Kansas as like a, a like the wild hunt of medieval fucking Europe, like riding into uh, pro-slavery settlements and just rustling cattle and having shootouts with U.S. cavalry and fucking uh, uh, doing jailbreaks and shit and becoming like legendary figures and drawing to Kansas free staters who were willing to fucking fight. And that's what galvanized northern sentiment to make the democratic compromise that had allowed the uh, the democracy to hold together in the face of the Whigs splitting up and the you know their opposition becoming hegemonically anti-slavery. That was the last. That was the fucking wafer thin mint that Mr. Creosote could no longer fucking uh, digest. And as soon as as soon as the question of uh, bringing in Kansas became central to the party platforms. Uh, it was no longer, the, the Democratic Party was no longer viable. And honestly, it might not even have mattered because fucking Lincoln swept the North even more, uh, because it's not like there were a lot of votes for Breckenridge or Bell anywhere in the, the Northern states. Even where it was a two-man race, uh, uh, Lincoln cleaned Douglas's fucking clock. And the thing that changed that dynamic, and of course there's other stuff, and there's no way to say that if he hadn't done Osawatomie Creek that like we wouldn't have a civil war, like, obviously. But he helped, he acted out of a sense of the terrain. He was not acting out of a desire to see vengeance done and to see himself, his bloodthirst slated. I was in his 50s at that point. If he'd wanted that, he would have done it earlier. Oh man, Chinese New Year, they're going to rub our asses into it. And we have it coming. So when you see somebody fetishizing John Brown, ask, like, what are you really into this for? And hopefully people will get that. But, like, it means more than just symbolizing it. You have to interrogate yourself. And you have to find, you have to log off and not just, like, not go on the internet. Not have anything around you at all but yourself to fucking sit with. Until you hear something. Because there's something there. We're all drowning it out every fucking second of the day. We're like in Harrison Bergeron. We don't even know we're doing it. You gotta fucking sit with it. And then you gotta act. The people around you. And you gotta build those relationships through experience. That let you carry through and do things that are against your immediate self-interest. Because you're carrying with you a, a, a warmth. It's always there. It's always renewing. I was all right. There you go. So yeah, something's gonna be. It's gonna be some stuff like that in whatever I end up writing. I do try to meditate. I've, I've been bad at it lately, but uh, I do like it, and I hope to get better at it. And, you know, it all sounds like a, like a retreat to the self, which is exactly what happened after the 60s, but that's inevitable. Like I said, this experience does not, for most people, generate anything differently. And even among people who it does generate something into, their experience might not allow them to uh, activate their new beliefs. And they might end up getting just beaten out of them by life. 
You know, like it is this, it only generates bad, uh, deep, you know, it only generates this, this empty, hollow, depressed life. It doesn't, it, 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 it suppresses the spark of, you know, of, of something beyond that, that the, the awareness that you are actually connected to something other than yourself, that you're not t- cut off. And so most people aren't going to be able to do anything effective their whole lives. It's unlikely. The only the things that make it more likely are things like class struggle being articulated as such, which I think is going to happen. But like I said, you know, we're just we're on a time time level situation. But we're mostly going to continue to like in, the the majority of all of us. We have to remember this. No matter what we individually have, whatever one of if whoever you are when you're hearing this, whatever you decide to do with your life, there's no there's no likelihood that the that anything like the majority of people is going to have some sort of shocking change of recognition. That's not going to happen. They're going to they're going to be they're going to go towards their demographic uh, cohort as long as they are experiencing life uh, through the lenses of the consumer. And th- that's why the '60s fell to that because it was it was a consumer revolt in the same frame in the same way. Only it was about it was the high expectations were even higher. They were already getting stuff that objectively we would be drooling for, but because of that, they had higher expectations than the culture could give them. And so that was a that was a consumer revolt too. And now we're having another one. The difference is that there is no big bucket of gravy at the end of the rainbow to drown these motherfuckers with, which is what demobilized it last time. There is no there's no more fucking there's nothing in the cupboard. Full proletarianization and deep neo-peasantization is all we can look forward to. And that terminal crisis, the, 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 the lack of a uh, realistically conceivable alternative to full immiseration if nothing changes, that, that's the thing that changes the conditions and spins the fucking can, mixes the paint can. And as long as we're, our eyes are open and our hearts are open, we can maybe participate in that. But everything else is for entertainment purposes only. It is not real politics. It is, it is a big argument of people trying, to, uh, trying to, to find someone to yell at about why. And the left and right are divided demographically. Once again, not everyone, but for the most part. White male... Uh, grew up in the suburbs, especially if the parents are like middle class but not college educated, oh, you are going to uh, be blaming the blacks. You are going to be blaming the blacks. And if you go to college, where you learn all about empiricism and about how God is dead and that we are what filled the void and that therefore we have to rebuild the world, you know, out, out of dead sticks, well, you'll learn about things like uh, like the bell curve, and you'll learn about IQ, and you'll learn about uh, survival of the fittest and stuff like that, and genetics, and that gives you a reason to do that. Oh, look at that. That's so nice. Thank you. If you grew up in, like, an inner ring suburb, uh, if you went to, if you uh, were, went to college, and if you aspired to, because of your middle class upbringing, you aspired to a knowledge economy job, you're probably uh, on the left somewhere. Uh, like this, and then the split depends on like the specific conditions of that. So if you uh, if you are one of those you know one of those children who got a job in like the PMC strata, even though it's precarious and like you have a ton of student loan debt. It is like a status job relative to, you know, working at McDonald's or driving an Uber, but you don't have a lot of money. Uh, Or, I mean, but you do have like a decent amount of money and an expectation of more. Like you have that and so you can see yourself as precarious. You can definitely feel aggrieved that you didn't get the deal you signed up for, but you are still feeling like you're you're on a track. You're probably for Warren. If you went through that uh, whole treadmill and ended up falling, you're probably for Bernie.
So once again, I'm explaining these things. I'm talking about myself and reasonable uh, extrapolations from that experience. Y'all can tell me if this sounds familiar. All right, cool. I'm glad that makes sense. All right. I'm feeling like I'm ready. Because, like, the college thing, I felt like that's a good... That is the experience that, like, delimits this. Because we're talking about... Uh, uh, we're talking about people who basically all went to college. They almost all did. But their response to what the hegemonic college, like, manners of aspiring uh, managerial... You know, because there is no more... There is no more dignity in labor. There's only dignity in clickety-clack work. Um, everybody goes into college expecting that. That's the experience that like generates everything, and that's the experience that everybody who makes culture does. And the people who are moving towards what they think that they should do, which is multiculturalism, which is progressivism, which is materially grounded for ones who are successful because it means that they have to keep affirming these values in order to maintain their job positions because it is imposed. It is an imposed thing in those areas. So that's a reason that they have to hold these views. You know, the reason that they have to be uh, woke because there's a, like a prod on them to do it. Um, and then there's the people who say, fuck this and become conservative. The thing that distinguishes them is not uh, necessarily class, because among these people, we can be talking about beautiful voters' kids, we can be talking about professors' kids, doctors' kids, cops' kids, uh, construction workers' kids, anybody's kids, really, as long as they went to college expecting their life to be as good as it was when they were in high school. That's the experience. And what distinguishes it is basically geography. Rural and exurban and white, conservative. Uh, inner ring suburb and urban and white and other politically active minority uh, liberal. And the college is just the shoot that they all go through. That's it. And now, and that's what I was not really able to articulate, and why a lot of people got caught up and caught up on me talking about college. That it's not really about college; it's about geography. It's about whether you grew up around a hegemonic culture that was uh, generated by the global neoliberalized spectacle or in a more uh, more socially embedded um, regional culture. And then they all go to college and then they get sorted into Republicans and Democrats out of that. And I'm not saying that it's destiny for any individual person. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying that this is this describes everybody. I am saying that if you get a bunch of people and they have these experiences, it is these experiences of whiteness in a rural or exurban area versus, uh, you know, uh, whiteness in a diversifying inner ring uh, wealthy suburb. Those experiences produce different, uh, like, general reactions and general, uh, like, ideological formations. And those are the things that are uh, dictating, like, the political uh, scheme. But that it is sterile. It is not, it is not, because it's detached from class politics and class power, in this moment of total immiseration, it is sterile and can only spin its wings and cannot effectively oppose the full boot of neoliberal uh globalized finance capital because it's only it's being fought on behalf of these retrograde reactionary elements that 
by their very uh, nature and structure, cannot allow for working class solidarity because they make exclusions on cultural lines, which the liberal ones do too. But they do it on behalf of global capital and the conservative does it on behalf of this, this, uh, these barons, this archipelago of baronial feudal power. But they're, none of them are doing it on behalf of themselves. As a, through class interest and as a class project, a class operating as itself and for itself, operating for other classes, for the PMC finance oligarchy and from the local boat ownership uh, class. And what will break that is the emergence from below, the orthogonal uh, release of a working class energy the drums at Boys Canaan. That's what'll do it. And the only and that this is not should not blackpill anyone or be like, oh, politics is useless. It should free you. These things that feel intractable conflicts between sides that are dredged, like this is the Western Front. And you can just bypass it. You can just say, oh, that's not for me. You can be like that drill tweet where he gets the bill from the fucking waitress and he goes, no, thank you. I don't believe in that. You can liberate yourself from caring, which is what is oppressive. Anxiety, as I have said, that is the electric prod on the nuts that keeps you in line. Anxiety. Because we're too well off to fear we have anxiety. And then and that and anything that loads you up with more of it, paralyzes you further, is not good for you. So you can fucking yes, you can do the Maginot move. You can go through Belgium and fuck this whole bullshit off. Kill the cannon in your head. That's it. All right.